0: After the Buddha's enlightenment, it's said that he spent several weeks around the Bodhi tree, contemplating various aspects of the Dhamma, the law. And then he went to a town outside of what is now Benares, a small town called Sarnath, to a deer park, where he gave the first discourse this turning of the wheel of the law. Gave it to the five ascetics with whom he had previously practiced. And in this turning of the wheel of the Dhamma the Buddha outlined or declared his understanding of the truth of suffering and its cause and the end of suffering And the path to the end of suffering. What makes this teaching so alive today is the practicality of the actual path. That it is something we can do and it's something we can practice. we can look to see whether we are actually cultivating this path to liberation in our meditation practice, in our life choices. When I first read and heard about the Eightfold Path, it seemed to me like another nice list of countless lists, you know, and it seemed very pat and yeah, The Noble Eightfold Path. For a long time, I could not even remember all of them. You know, it just, they didn't seem connected to one another. and It was just, it was just another categorization. <coughs> but as the years have worn on, <laughs> I've begun to appreciate increasingly the interdependence of all the links in this path. That is not just a nice collection of rights this and rights that. Each one is actually leading to the next. And I've come to appreciate in a much deeper sense how this noble Eightfold Path is really a very subtle and sophisticated map of understanding both of how our meditation unfolds and how our life unfolds. The Buddha's wisdom is very profound and often things which seem simplistic or seem very obvious actually have a very deep meaning for us to discover. Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as a way to happiness. He taught it as the path to freedom, freedom from suffering, freedom from the suffering of kalesa, of greed and hatred and delusion. The question that I would like to consider tonight is why right understanding is placed first on the list. Why is right understanding given a place of such critical importance on this path to liberation? When we look closely, we can begin to see the critical role that understanding plays in our lives the understanding of anything, begin to see that it is the underlying viewpoints and assumptions that we have in our lives that actually leads to the kinds of thoughts that we have. Because we understand things in a certain way, we then have particular kinds of thoughts. And as you have seen very clearly in these past months, the thoughts tend to proliferate. We have this massive proliferation of thoughts, which then conditions actions. And it's very clear that actions, the actions that we do, have an extremely profound effect on ourselves and other people. The understanding we have of things leads to the way we think about things. The way we think about things lead to the actions which we do. Actions have powerful effects. But very often we don't reflect, we don't investigate our basic underlying assumptions. We live our lives acting them out in our thoughts and actions, But we don't look carefully, we don't see what is the basic viewpoint that we're carrying, that we're holding. We can see also that (coughs) often the greatest breakthroughs, whether it's breakthroughs in our personal lives, breakthroughs in science, in art, in any endeavor, often the very greatest turning points are when we begin to question the basic assumptions. Is what we believe really true? Do we test it? Do we look at it? Let's give some examples of the way right understanding, the way understanding of anything plays a role in how we think and how we act to take an example from history, which is quite simple really. Now for so many centuries, people had the understanding that the world was flat. This was the common assumption, the common viewpoint. So what kind of thoughts did this produce? If the understanding is that the world is flat, going to be some kind of thought about fear of falling off the edge. It follows from the understanding, don't get too close to the edge. The consequence of those kinds of thoughts are that people stayed very close to shore, afraid to sail out until somebody questioned the basic assumption. Maybe the earth is not flat. Maybe we won't fall off. Maybe we don't have to stay close to shore. There's a a common assumption that many people have, a common understanding in the world at large that somehow human beings have been given dominion over the earth. That the earth and everything on it is to serve human beings. Oh, we see where that kind of understanding leads. Leads to many kinds of thoughts, of how things can serve us, how we can use things, lead to the actions of all kinds of exploitation. Very different consequences than if we start from the understanding (coughs) that all things are interdependent. That human beings and all animals and all plants and the earth itself is a system of interdependence. Very different kinds of thoughts follow. Very different kinds of actions follow. (coughs) Many people have the understanding, basic assumption in their lives, that we are essentially separate from one another. If we have this understanding, if this is our basic viewpoint, the kinds of thoughts that come from it very often tend to thoughts of differences. If we think of ourselves as being separate, ultimately separate, the mind gravitates to how different other people are from us. Differences of religion, differences of race, differences of politics. As the mind thinks or gravitates towards differences, fear arises in the mind. Fear of those who are different. From fear comes actions of discrimination, actions of violence. Actions based on that assumption of separation. Often the assumptions we have are invisible. It can be difficult to look at or investigate our basic viewpoint, our basic understanding, because they've become so much a part of ourselves, of who we are. So sometimes it's helpful to work backwards from the action. The actions that we do are quite noticeable, especially after two and a half months of mindfulness. We can know what we're doing in the course of the action So we can use that as the starting point. Just as an example, we take some action that is perhaps based on greed in the mind. The hand reaching for the third banana or the tenth cup of tea or the piece of chocolate that you know is going to make you feel sick and still still going for it what's the thought behind it what's the thought behind that action the thought behind it almost always is i want it <laughs> yeah you know? i want the object i want the piece of food i want to do this thing So what's the understanding behind that thought? The thought is not just happening independent of an understanding. There's an underlying assumption. The underlying assumption behind I want it is that this action, this thing, this banana is going to make me happy. From that understanding... Comes the thought, I want it. From the thought, I want it, comes the action. We take it. Suppose we find ourselves in the action of angry words with someone. What's the thoughts behind those angry words? What actually is motivating that action? It could be the thought, on some level, I want to hurt this person. That's what anger does. Anger is a violent act. It's an act of violence of speech. It's an aggressive energy. What's the understanding behind that wanting to hurt? Could be, well, I've been hurt, and it's right that I hurt back. That's appropriate. Now, we have a certain viewpoint or a certain understanding. Given certain circumstances, this is appropriate to do. There are whole cultures you know, in which revenge is given a place of honor. That if some wrong is done, it's appropriate, it's honorable to take revenge. Given that understanding... And it's a particular viewpoint that people may have. Given that understanding, certain thoughts come, certain actions follow. As we see more clearly, the critical role that understanding plays in this chain of conditioning... Understanding leading to certain kinds of thoughts, certain kinds of thoughts leading to certain kinds of actions, it becomes clear that attention, a wise attention to our understanding, is absolutely critical. Because from our understanding of things come thoughts and feelings and actions. It's for this reason that the Buddha placed right understanding as first on the list. Because it all follows from the way we understand things. The Buddha talked of how endless blessings and harmony come from a right understanding of things. When we understand things correctly. And how disharmony, how sorrow, how suffering come from an incorrect understanding, from wrong understanding. Right understanding is like a junction point out of which come three great paths of happiness when we understand it well. The first of these, the first of these paths of happiness that come out of right understanding is the essential and underlying wisdom That wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. That wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. This is the core of the entire Dhamma. This understanding is the source point for every kind of happiness in our lives. Because from this basic wisdom that each of our actions, our actions of body, our actions of speech, our actions of mind, from this wisdom that each of our actions brings about a particular result, but each of our actions are the conditions for different results arising. Out of this understanding comes the possibility of actually making wise choices in our life. Without this understanding, we are just acting blindly out of conditioning. We're simply acting out the patterns, the habitual patterns of our conditioning. The ability to see clearly in the moment and to make choices, to be able to make wise choices, is the opening of this possibility of genuine happiness and genuine freedom. We can begin to cultivate an attitude of very direct and basic honesty about ourselves. And We look at ourselves and we see this package of qualities that we are. And we're all a package. We're a package of wholesome things and a package of unwholesome things. We develop the ability to look at this carefully and we see with straightforwardness, not trying to cover, not trying to mask. And as we see clearly, as we see the package that we are, we begin to practice letting go of, and abandoning, and renouncing, of avoiding, of giving up, all those nuances of renunciation, those things that are unskillful. Because we know from our understanding that unskillful actions bring about suffering. And we cultivate those qualities in this package that are either there or not yet there. We cultivate those wholesome qualities which we know from right understanding are going to bring about happiness in our lives in the lives of other people. It's because of right understanding that wholesome and unwholesome actions bring their respective results that it inspires us To actually create our lives, to fashion our lives. Not simply to be the victim of old patterns of conditioning. Just a few examples of how we do this. If we have the understanding that greed is unskillful, that greed is an unwholesome state of mind, that it brings about suffering. Out of this understanding, certain thoughts start to arise. What kinds of thoughts? Thoughts of letting go, thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of generosity. And from these thoughts of letting go and of generosity, certain feelings begin to arise in us. Feelings of metta, feelings of compassion, feelings of sympathetic joy. That is wanting to benefit other beings, wanting to alleviate the suffering of other beings, taking delight in the happiness of others. From the right understanding that greed is unwholesome, that it leads to suffering, thoughts of letting go, thoughts of generosity, Feelings of metta, of compassion, of sympathetic joy begin to arise. And from these thoughts and feelings, we then begin to act in much less self-centered ways. We begin to actually perform actions of generosity, of service. And the beauty of all this is that in these acts of a generous heart, and we're actually acting from that place of a generous heart, the feelings of metta and compassion and sympathetic joy continue to grow. And so it's this spiral upward through the divine abodes. We begin living in greater and greater happiness. And in this process, we are actually freeing the mind from the kalesis of stinginess, of greed, of selfishness, of pride. And so in that way too, our minds become lighter, they become happier, they become more spacious. All of this came out of an understanding. This whole spiral through the Brahma realms. All of it came from the understanding. Greed is an unwholesome mind state. It leads to suffering. Our understanding of that had all of these consequences. In just the same way, from the from the understanding of actions bringing certain results we know that harming others and cruelty is unwholesome is, is unskillful that it brings suffering both in the moment and in the future so out of this understanding what arises in us when we really see this clearly From the understanding come thoughts of non-harming. Non-violence. From these thoughts of non-harming come feelings again of metta and compassion. Out of these thoughts and feelings come the actions of basic morality. Buddha described morality as being the true beauty of a person. And in our culture, we're so concerned with outer beauty. Outer beauty is not of much value. The real value is in the beauty of our being. And that is when we are embodying non-harming, when we're embodying metta, when we're embodying compassion. Where do the actions come from? They come from certain thoughts. Where does the thoughts come from? They come from an understanding. The understanding that harming and cruelty is unskillful, is unwholesome, is productive of suffering. These actions, in turn, free the mind from certain laces. The actions of non-harming free the mind from fear. They free the mind from anger. They free the mind from resentment. So, again, we're living in this wonderful inner space of genuine love and genuine care. Something that I mentioned quite early in the retreat. I wanted to read it again because it's very appropriate in appreciating the power of right understanding not just theoretically as we're sitting in a meditation retreat but as it actually applies in the often intense circumstances of people's lives. Mentioned about this British hostage who had been held in Lebanon for four years, held in a very tight and confined space and subject to all kinds of torture and deprivation, horrible circumstances. And he was released when I was teaching in England. There were a lot of publicity in the papers about him. And what was so amazing about this person Just as an aside, his sentiments are very similar to what I recently read about um, the president of Czechoslovakia, Havel, in talking about the people who had uh, imprisoned him. It was very similar to what this, this British hostage said. And it reflects a way of understanding He said, I feel no desire for vengeance. I feel no desire for retribution. I don't see them as positive. I don't see them as meaningful. I find those things self-maiming, and I do not intend maiming myself. The power of understanding something in a certain way. He understood them as having no value, of no meaning, meaning of being self-maiming. And out of the understanding came thoughts and feelings and actions of restraint, of compassion, of metta. It's for this reason that understanding, the basic assumptions we have, are of such critical importance. actions of generosity, of service, of non-harming, actions of restraint, lead to our own happiness and the happiness of others. Because they purify our mind and purify our hearts of Kalesis. We are actually freeing ourselves from the force of greed, of envy, of anger, of resentment. And it's all has its seed in the understanding that wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. This understanding is is the very core of the Buddha Dhamma because from it we are empowered to make choices. We can make wise choices in our lives. If we start from a place of wrong understanding, if we start from a place of incorrectly seeing how things are working, it leads to all kinds of suffering, all kinds of disturbance. Just some examples of some fairly common assumptions that people base their lives on. That this life is all there is and there are no consequences to our actions. A lot of people out there think that that our actions are just falling into a void and that there are no consequences of them. That we live completely separate from one another. Or that the people we feel connected to are a very small, small circle. And that everybody on the outside of that circle is separate, is different, is them, as opposed to us. The assumption that the way to happiness is through the accumulation of a lot of pleasure. That, that we'll be happy if we can just string together more and more moments of pleasure. The understanding that anger or hatred don't have any results. Now all of these these ways of thinking about things, all of these ways of understanding, it's just like a direct path to suffering because it's out of harmony with how things actually are. One of my very favorite advertisements was a advertisement for Salem cigarettes. And it had this very idyllic scene and the caption was, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. <laughs> this is, that's an understanding. <laughs> but it's not an understanding that's going to lead to much happiness. It might lead to some moments of pleasure. With these kinds of assumptions, it leads to very different kinds of thoughts and very different kinds of actions in our lives. So it becomes very important for us to look at what our basic understanding is. This is not easy to do, because it can often feel vague or amorphous. Well, how do I go about understanding my understanding? You know, where to, how do we get a handle on this? It's not something that we're used to doing—questioning our own assumptions, questioning our own viewpoints. There are two possible ways that we can begin this investigation. Of really coming to look at how we understand things. One way is to pay attention to the very predominant patterns of thoughts and feelings that are arising in our particular package of conditioning. You know, what are the things that come up again and again and again and to work backwards from those Suppose there are strong habitual patterns of anger or of lust or of compassion. The things that are predominant, to recognize them clearly and then to look back, what's the understanding behind that? What's the understanding in us that's giving rise to these thoughts and feelings? Working backwards from our actions can often reveal a lot about how we actually think about things. Another way of doing it would be to take the Buddhist teachings as a reference point. Not as dogma and not as something to blindly believe, but really as a reference point for us to check out our own particular way of understanding things. Now, we may go down the list and say, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. I don't believe that. Okay, that will tell us something about the understanding that we're holding. So, in this domain of right understanding, this junction point, the first path of happiness, is the path of happiness which comes from the understanding that wholesome actions bring about happy results, unwholesome actions bring about suffering. That's the first core piece that we need to investigate. The second path out of this junction place of right understanding is the path of happiness which comes from the understanding of jhana, of concentration practice. This comes about when we begin to see the limitation of the happiness of sense pleasures. And I think we all share that. And we come from very fortunate society. We come from a society and culture, for most of us, where we've enjoyed so many things. For most of us it has not been a culture of deprivation. And so we know. We have played. A lot, you know, in the realm of the senses. We know what that enjoyment is. And I think we all share a sense of the limitation of it, which is what brings us here. We know that it affords a certain kind of happiness, but that the happiness is very limited. And so it prompts us to look or to explore is there a happiness? beyond this domain of sense pleasures. Is there another kind of happiness that's possible? Through the development of jhana, of concentration, and this could be the jhana of samadhi practice, you know, the one-pointed concentration, it could be what are also called the Vipassana jhanas, just the different levels of concentration that we experience in Vipassana as well. We begin to get a taste of the mind that is collected. It's called the seclusion of the mind. In these states of seclusion, of concentration, the hindrances, the kalesas, are not operative. They're still there. They still can arise at other times but during the period of concentration they are tranquilized. And so there's no disturbing force happening in the mind. It becomes very, very peaceful. And the taste of this is so wonderful that even if in three months people have just glimpses of this taste of concentration, it's often enough of a hook To actually be back for more. (laughs) Because it's so unique in our lives. And it's so different than the pleasure, than the happiness that the sense realm affords. Through the mastery of the jhanas, when people actually master these states all kinds of things are possible. You know, in different times during the retreat, I've mentioned, at least in brief, the different psychic powers that people can develop and all the kinds of miraculous (laughs) things. It all comes out of this power of jhana. And at the time of death, if this concentration is still strong in the mind, it's said that people take rebirth in the Brahma realms where they live For a very long time. And the reason for the long life in those realms is that there's no disturbing influence. There's no decaying influence of the Kalesis. The mind is so pure that life lasts a very long time. So this is the second path of happiness out of right understanding. It's the understanding of the way of jhana, the way of concentration, the kind of happiness that it can bring and where it leads to. The third path of happiness out of right understanding is the path of happiness from the understanding of insight knowledge. And this insight knowledge can happen with or without the jhana attainment. We've talked about this very, very often. The kinds of insights that come through the practice of mindfulness, through the practice of paying attention. Talked about the insight into nama rupa, seeing that in every moment of experience, what is actually happening is a mental, physical process arising and passing away. The Buddha elaborated on this, this insight of Nama Rupa, in one model which is one of the most frequent parts of the teachings. When you read the suttas, when you read the actual discourses of the Buddha, I think it's the most frequent way the Buddha described our experience. in describing what actually happens in a moment is description of the five aggregates and when we look closely when we really observe closely we can see what it is that's going on for example there is a sensation of heat of cold of pressure of tightness the sensation itself is physical Called Rupa. It's a physical element. It's one of the aggregates, the aggregates of the physical elements. Along with the sensation is a feeling. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So part of that moment's experience, part is the physical element, part is the feeling element. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant the second aggregate. The third part of the experience is the perception, the recognition of what it is. It's the recognition which distinguishes that experience from all other experiences. And so it's in this aggregate that we have all kinds of concepts, the function of memory, there's the physical matter, there's feelings, there's perception. The fourth aggregate are all the ways the mind is relating to the object. and really is all of the other mental factors other than feeling and perception. There's greed towards the object, there's aversion, there's mindfulness, there's concentration, there's pliancy of mind, there's restlessness, there's boredom. Whatever combination of qualities are arising in the moment in relationship to the object, These are called the mental activities, or sankharas. There's the material elements, there's the feeling component, there's the perception component, there's the component of the mental activities, and there's consciousness itself, the knowing. We may not always be aware of all of these at once, although they're all arising together. But at different times, as our attention gets strong, different one of these become very predominant. The physical elements often are very clear. Often the feeling is, we know very clearly something is pleasant or unpleasant. Often the recognition of what it is is very clear. The mental activities, all the way the mind is relating, or the knowing itself. The reason the Buddha emphasized this teaching of the five aggregates and urged us to look again and again is that it frees the mind from the concept of self, from the concept of I. We see actually what's there rather than our idea or concept of what is there. And it's the uprooting of the sense of self, this concept, this idea, uprooting the attachment to it which frees us from so much suffering in our lives. The Buddha said that understanding the selflessness of it all is the source of so many blessings. There's one discourse which in reading through the texts for me has always jumped out. And it's not a particularly famous or well-known discourse. But I think it actually has the potential to enlighten. So I wanted to (laughs) just tell you about it. But I'll I'll give you a little uh, preamble first. It has the uh, trappings of a philosophical discussion which may be what kind of captured my mind. My mind likes that kind of thing. But when you follow the thread of the discourse It says if the Buddha is I don't know exactly the right word it it says if he is uncreating the self right in front of us. And he's just psh, self is gone. So that's the preamble. <laughs> there was this monk Anuradha who I don't think was particularly distinguished in any way other than for this particular discourse. There's another monk who was very famous, whose, whose name was Anuruddha. An- 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 That's somebody different. This is Anuruddha. He was wandering through the forest and a group of other ascetics came up to him. And they said that it's said of the Buddha that he exists after death or he doesn't exist after death or he both exists and doesn't exist after death or he neither exists nor doesn't exist after death. Okay, this is a very classical Indian kind of philosophical it is, it isn't, it both is and isn't, it neither is nor isn't. <laughs> this part is not so important. Although in a way it is, you have to, you have to kind of keep track. <laughs> and Anuradha said that the Buddha is spoken of in a way other than Exists, doesn't exist, both exist and not, neither exists nor not. The the Buddha after death is spoken of in another way. And then the ascetics began to revile him. They were making fun of him. They said, you must just be a young novice who doesn't know anything, or you're an ignorant fool. And then they went away. So poor Anuradha, he was thinking after they went away, well, what if they had really pressed me, you know, for... with another question about this. I'd better go ask the Buddha. Yeah, okay, so he went off and he, he went to the Buddha and he told the Buddha of what had happened. You know, of what the ascetics had said, what he had said, and how he had been reviled. So then the Buddha led him through a series of questions. Okay, so this is what you need to pay attention to. And see if you can listen as if the Buddha is asking each one of us these questions. And that's to listen in that way. The first thing the Buddha asked was of Anuradha, is the body permanent or impermanent? Anuradha said, Impermanent bante. Bhante means venerable, sir. Are feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent bante. And the Buddha asked, what is impermanent? Is that satisfying or unsatisfying? Unsatisfying, Bhante. Buddha asked, that which is impermanent, that which is unsatisfying, what is of the nature to change? Is it proper to regard that as this is mine? This is myself. This is I. Remember, he's asking about each one of the aggregates now the body, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness, all the components of each moment of experience. Each one is impermanent. Each one is unsatisfying. Is it proper to regard that as this is mine? This is who I am? This is self? No, Bhante. Now stay right with this. <laughs> now, Anuradha, do you regard, and here we use the, the word Tathagata. Tathagata means the Buddha. Do you regard the Tathagata's body as the Tathagata? Surely not, Bhante. Do you regard the Tathagata's feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness as being the Tathagata or apart from the Tathagata? Okay, do you regard the body, the feelings, the perception, the mental activities, the consciousness? Do you regard each one as of them as the Tathagata? No Bhante. Do you regard them as apart from the Tathagata? No Bhante. Do you regard the Tathagata as having no body, no feeling, no perception, no activities, no consciousness? Surely not Bhante. then since in this very life the Tathāgata is not met with, the Tathāgata is not there in this very life, not to be found, is it proper to say anything of him after his death? You see what just happened? From this view of the Buddha being a person of whom one can say anything. You know, in this case it was question after his death. Say anything. He exists, he doesn't exist, he both exists and doesn't exist. He neither exists nor doesn't exist. Or anything other than that. One cannot say anything of him because when you look closely There is nothing there which is the Tathagata. Do you take the body to be the Tathagata? No. We don't take pressure. Yes, I'm pressure. We don't say that. We don't take pressure to be self. We don't take feelings to be self, especially when we see their momentariness. Don't take perceptions. Don't take mental activities. Don't take consciousness. Don't take it to be self. Don't take it to be apart from self. There's no one there. Buddha said, well said, Anuradha. <laughs> he <laughs> answered all his questions. Both formally and now also, only this do I teach what suffering is and what is its end. This is the wisdom of right understanding of insight. And just as we observe, as we look carefully, that's what we're about. As I suggested to you, the practice is not to get something, it's to understand. There's nothing to get, because everything that we might get will also just be One of the five aggregates, which is (laughs) impermanent, changing, not self, our practice is to understand. So, let's sit for a few minutes.